hello and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe Naren and Fergal Armstrong. In the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to follow on from our previous episodes of Cracking Addiction and talk in a bit more detail about cannabis and cannabis use disorder. So cannabis is one of the most commonly used psychoactive substances in the world, and the psychoactive properties of cannabis are mainly due, as we've discussed in previous episodes, to delta-9 tetrahydrocannabinol, THC. And it's the THC concentration that is commonly used to measure cannabis's potency. As we've discussed in previous episodes of Cracking Addiction, THC is a partial agonist to the CB1 and CB2 cannabinoid receptors, and it works by activating the CB1 receptor in the dopaminergic mesolimbic brain circuit, resulting in dopamine release and the so-called brain reward system that is a reinforcing uh, mechanism for the uh, rewarding effects of substance use as well. And this is one of the ways that cannabis works, and it is why cannabis can be so addictive. So, Fergal, could you expand on some of the symptoms that we should be aware of in identifying, say, the intoxicating effects of, of cannabis in some of our patients? Yeah, so there's, there's the, your introduction was fascinating. There's a lot to, 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 to say, so I, I, forgive me if I wander, but to answer your first question, which was what are the signs and symptoms of, of intoxication? The DSM-5 provides you with a set of criteria for, for intoxication. They, first of all, exposure within one to two hours and then developing a set of behavioral changes and then a set of symptoms specific to cannabis use disorder. So you've got exposure and then within one to two hours, you're developing the following behavioral changes. And I remember that by the mnemonic CSIC, S-E-A, S-I-C, so S for social withdrawal, E for euphoria, A for anxiety, S for a sense of time being disturbed, and then I for impaired coordination and C for cognition, uh, that's also impaired. So those are the behavioral changes. And then we come across the specific signs and symptoms of cannabis intoxication within this overall context of behavioral change. And I remember that by date. So dry mouth, anxiety, tachycardia, and eye signs, and in particular, red eyes. But, you know, if you can't remember those specific criteria, I mean, you know, basically you're looking at someone who is euphoric with the munchies and dry eyes. That's how you can tell if someone has been intoxicated with cannabis. And, and, and then we have to think about the duration of cannabis intoxication because, you know, cannabis is basically very lipophilic. So anything that's lipophilic will be stored in fat. And so there's a, there's, there's a, a gradual... Um, transition from a unicompartment model into a tricompartmental model over 12 hours. There's an equilibrium over that. So we've got the central vascular compartment, which is the systemic compartment. Then we've got the, the, the water-soluble compartment, which is basically the muscles. And then we've got the, the water-insoluble compartment, which is the fat. So the more fat you've got in your body, the longer potentially will be your duration of intoxication. And also, you've got to remember that because cannabis is lipophilic, it, it can also be involved in the enterohepatic circulation. And so, um, you know, it takes a while if you stop from, from cessation of a drug, it takes a while for that drug to be cleared if it is lipophilic because there is a prolonged action of the enterohepatic circulation. So for those reasons, it's quite possible to see those signs occurring for a long time after the episode of exposure has finished. 
but the signs need to occur within two hours of that exposure. That's a great summary, Fergal, and I think you've covered a, a lot in there. And I think also for some of our viewers as well, we need to also be aware that not all cannabis is created equal and there are different potencies of mm. cannabis. And we're not even talking about synthetic cannabis in, in this talk, but yeah. cannabis that we typically are aware of is usually the unsorted mixture of dried flowers, leaves and stem, which usually has a THC content of around 6%. And then you've got other preparations such as hashish, which is some of the compressed resinous secretions of the plant, and, and the THC content of that could be around 40%. Then there's hash oil, which is even more concentrated, and it's oil derived from the resin, and that can have a THC content of around 50%. And then you have even more higher concentrates of that, and I've heard of concentrates of up to 80% of THC as well. So it's, it's quite interesting that we talk about cannabis as if it's this, this homogenous um, uh, plant and this homogenous um, mixture, but it, it really is quite remarkable, the different concentrations of THC. And this is just uh, the, the, the standard THC. We're not, we're not even talking about synthetic uh, cannabis, which, which works in different ways and which we'll talk about in a, in a future episode of Cracking Addiction. But I find that quite fascinating. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's, it just demonstrates that Mother Nature is so varied. And I, I, think, I think if we as human beings, as a society, as a culture, think that we can actually beat Mother Nature at our own game, we're going to lose. You know, we've, we've said before, there are literally hundreds of phytocannabinoids that we don't really understand their properties. Um, and, and of course, and then in this particular one example, just with THC, there's so many ways of actually increasing the extraction. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just entirely variable. And the bottom line is we don't truly yet have a complete understanding of what we're dealing with just yet. And we might never do. And, and that's right, Fergal. And I think you've, you've provided us with quite a bit of information about uh, the signs and symptoms to, to be aware of with, with cannabis intoxication. But I guess the, the logical follow-up question to that is, how big a problem is cannabis use in, in society? And are there specific population groups that are more prone to using cannabis that we should potentially be more aware of or screen more rigorously for cannabis use? Yeah, that's a very good question. So um, first of all, what's the prevalence? Now, in terms of prevalence, we have this triennial national household survey uh, that, that gives us uh, basically an idea of what people report. Now, it's not necessarily what people are taking because it's not... It's not wastewater analysis, but it's basically what people report. And roughly about, I think about 11 to 12%, correct me if I'm wrong, Philippe, and about 11, 11 12% of people report smoking cannabis. Um, and that's the commonest used uh, or misused uh, illicit substance in Australia. Now, um, why, why is that a problem? Well, the key thing to understand about cannabis use is it's actually fairly safe. Now, our, our, we, we both have a hero who works in England, and his name is David Nutt. And David Nutt wrote a fabulous paper a number of years ago detailing the harms to patients, individuals, and societies regarding all of the potentially misused substances. And, and cannabis was way, way low. Yeah, cannabis was actually deemed by Professor Nutt as much safer than alcohol. And because of that research, it's certainly in the United Kingdom, the, the, the legal sanctions against cannabis use were, were, were minimized. But then, unfortunately, um, one of the politicians who was, on the, who was on the committee determining the legal sanction for cannabis use 
his relative, his a young male relative of his, developed schizophrenia. As a result of which, he took it upon himself to make it his personal battle to re-sanction the use of cannabis. Rather than listening to the overall science, he used his own personal experience of his relative, who was a, it was a young man who was vulnerable, developing schizophrenia. He took that personal experience and overrode the entire science. Now, I'm not here to, to discuss the rights and wrongs of, of what happened there, but it does the story does highlight that in certain individuals, cannabis use is an epigenetic risk factor for either early presentation of schizophrenia or the development of schizophrenia. So it, that risk, I think, seems to be age-limited. Once you get to about 25, you're probably not going to get schizophrenia as a result of cannabis, but under 25, it can be a risk factor. So, you know, it's very hard sometimes to say to your younger patients who are smoking cannabis, and you say to them, well, you can't smoke cannabis until you're 25, otherwise you'll get schizophrenia, because that's just not true. You have to give them a more nuanced view and say, well, your, your risk of developing schizophrenia is higher. But that, so that on, the, on one hand, I've got that piece of information that, that I need to give them. But then when they ask me, well, just how dangerous is cannabis? Well, we know that it's a lot less harmful than alcohol. So it's a very difficult, nuanced, um, it's a difficult, nuanced um, discussion to have. Overall, however, as, as a harm reduction interventionist, I'm not going to criticize a young person for smoking cannabis. I'm not going to be pejorative. I'm not going to be negative about it. I'm just going to give them the evidence. And we know that people who have certain vulnerabilities will then go on to developing cannabis use disorder. And that's when we really do have to be a bit more careful. And I know certainly from my anecdotal experience, uh, a lot of my patients with mental health conditions seem to disproportionately smoke cannabis than those without mental health conditions. Yeah. And also, I guess, to, yeah. to piggyback off of what you were saying, and this is slightly tangential to the discussion as well, but I thought the point that you made about how we determine what is safe and not safe as a drug in society is, is quite fascinating. You brought up David Nutt and, and yeah. his um, uh, excellent study on, on the different substances and their harms. There's also a great book uh, called yeah. Chasing the Screen by, by Johan Hari, which actually kind of delves into the war yeah. on drugs and how we penalize certain drugs and we penalize yeah. certain classes of people as well. And a lot of it is not based on the evidence. It's based on, on prejudice, outdated data, and closed-minded thinking. So uh, slightly off topic for this topic, but also it does yeah. highlight the fact that things that we think of as bad might not be as bad as we think they are. And it's some, sometimes yeah. uh, there's an evidence-free zone in, in, in addiction medicine and drug um, medicine in terms of the harms we attribute to things and how we penalize and punish people who use substances. So I thought that was that was certainly interesting in your in your little talk there about um, uh, the harms of cannabis. I, I totally concur. Uh, alcohol and tobacco cause far more harms to society and the individual uh, than than cannabis as well. Yeah. I've certainly seen that in my practice, as yeah. I'm sure you have as well. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And I guess yeah. this brings me to to the second uh, aspect of, of, of the talk in the episode, which was how do you identify someone with a cannabis use disorder? There are criteria that we use, which is uh, the, the DSM-5 and ICD-11 criteria use, uh, usually. But is there a, a mechanism that you use, Fergal, to practically identify someone you feel is at risk of a cannabis use disorder? Yeah, so I think 
Before I answer that question, we need to actually ask the question then, what, what are the risk factors for developing a cannabis use disorder? Because we know that a, a significant number of people in Australia smoke cannabis. But not everyone who smokes cannabis will develop a cannabis use disorder. So I think it's important, first of all, to understand the, the, the risk factors for developing a substance use disorder, in particular for cannabis. Now, there, there's, there's really good research done um, in, uh, in the States with NIDA, where they've described the psychosocial risk factors for developing any substance use disorder. But before I go to that, I want to talk to you about my understanding of the, of the, the substance itself. Because I think it's important to understand what the substance is doing in terms of your risk of developing a substance use disorder and then the psychosocial context. Now, there's a hierarchy of addiction. Now, there was one great study where, which demonstrated the, the risk of dependency after first exposure. Right? And, and I think this is a fabulous hierarchy. The risk of dependency after first exposure to tobacco is 32%. So 32% of people after one exposure to tobacco smoking, will become addicted to tobacco. Well, that means that about 70% won't, right? So that, that's where we have to also understand the psychosocial uh, aspects of what causes addiction. But let's go, let's, sticking back to the drug list, tobacco's 32%, heroin's 23%. So I say, I look my patients in the eye, who's, uh, my patients who have smoking cessation issues, and I say, listen, I understand the difficulties you're going through, A, because I used to smoke, and I know how hard it was for me to quit. And B, smoking is more, tobacco is more addictive than heroin. Yeah. Then we have uh, cocaine at 17%. Then we have alcohol at 15%. Then we have stimulants at about 11%. And then we have cannabis and hypnosedatives around about the 9-10%. So, so we've got this hierarchy of drugs. And, and we know that cannabis is less likely to cause addiction than really, you know, uh, alcohol or heroin or tobacco smoking. But it does cause about one in 10 people who, who get, get first exposure to cannabis will ultimately then potentially have a, a cannabis use disorder. And, and so that's the hierarchy of drugs. And then we have to move into the, the psychosocial aspect. And there are a number of psychosocial risk factors for the development of any addiction. And so firstly, we have uh, the, the individual. So individuals who are prone to aggression, prone to conduct disorder as a child, they're more likely to get a use disorder if they're exposed to drugs. And then we have schools. We know that schools who have permissive drug policies that allow drugs in schools that don't stamp it out, the children that go to that school are more likely to have a substance use disorder. And then we have peer pressure or, or peer, peer groups. And then we know that if you're part of a peer group that, that does drugs, you're more likely to get addicted to drugs. Right? And then we have society. We know that grinding poverty is a risk factor for uh, substance use disorder. And so if you have two twins, they're identical twins, and they're separated at birth, and one is brought up in a wealthy, well-to-do family, and the other one is brought up in an orphanage and then lives on the streets. They're genetically identical. The twin that is brought up by the well-to-do family is going to end up being the lawyer that prosecutes the other twin for a substance use disorder in court because they're both going to meet in court. One twin's going to be the lawyer prosecuting, the other twin's going to be the defendant. And what I say is that any substance use disorder really should be seen as a symptom of social injustice because we know that if you've got a bad set of cards, you're more likely to develop a, a, a substance use disorder. 
That's not inevitable. I'm not saying that people who come from hard times are going to all end up uh, with uh, substance use disorders. I'm saying that they are risk factors. So I've preached a little, little bit about you know the, the, the vulnerabilities to uh, developing a substance use disorder. Then I need to uh, specifically about cannabis. You know how many people who who of the people that smoke cannabis, how many of them are going to develop a substance use disorder? And the the evidence is conflicting. Uh, I mean, I've read papers that suggest that twenty to twenty five percent of people who regularly smoke cannabis will then develop a a cannabis use disorder. I've read elsewhere that fifty um, percent of people who regularly smoke at least weekly cannabis, uh, sorry, twenty five percent who smoke weekly, will get a, a cannabis use disorder, but 50 to 90% of people who find themselves in treatment centers for cannabis or for any other, any other addiction, but who also smoke cannabis, they will also have a cannabis use disorder. So it's, in treatment, it can be up to 90%. The background rate's probably about 20 to 50%. Now, I've, I've done a lot of preaching, so I'm going to ask you the question then. What, how do you actually diagnose cannabis use disorder? So... Basically, there are two different scales or two different um, charts, I guess, that you could use, either the ICD-11 or the DSM-5 criteria uh, to, to diagnose a cannabis use disorder. And again, uh, based on how many of the criteria that the individual meets will, will determine the severity of their, their substance use disorder. So if we're going through the DSM-5 criteria for, for cannabis use disorder, it's very similar to, to many of the other substance use disorders in terms of, of the overlying themes. But basically, one would look at, um, especially over a 12-month period, taking cannabis um, in larger amounts over a longer period than was intended, a persistent uh, and unsuccessful effort, uh, persistent desire and unsuccessful efforts to, to cut down or control cannabis use, a greater deal of time spent in activities necessary to obtain cannabis, craving and a strong desire or urge to use cannabis, recurrent cannabis use resulting in a failure to, to meet one's obligations both at, at home and at work, uh, consistent, um, desire, um, consistent desire to cut down and in, in inability to cut down as well. Um, also, tolerance and withdrawal criteria uh, can also be used for cannabis use and I guess recurrent use in hazardous situations. And I haven't explained all of the DSM-5 criteria there. There's, there's 11 criteria that one would use uh, and the severity would basically be um, classified as mild, moderate, severe based on how many of the DSM-5 criteria one, one meets. Usually mild is between two or three of the 11 criteria, moderate four or five or severe greater than six. Uh, and that, that's readily available um, either through the manual itself or, or when one reviews it on the internet. But Fergal, I, I, I know you've got a, a great acronym called Chew That Cop, which we've <laughs> used previously in, for alcohol use disorder as well, which also yeah. does apply in terms of the, the overlying themes for, for, yeah. for diagnosing cannabis use disorder. But would you mind um, rehashing, rehashing that just to give our listeners and viewers uh, a bit more information on how to accurately identify people who are at risk of cannabis use disorder? Yeah, so Chew That Cop is the generic DSM-5 addiction criteria, or sorry, substance use disorder criteria. And you can, you can use these criteria to diagnose substance use disorder for any number of substances, including cannabis, including opioids, including alcohol. So it's, it's, I think it's the most famous mnemonic in addiction medicine. So C for, there's two Cs in Chew That Cop. The first C is for craving. The second C is for control, loss of control. 
H, there's two H's. So the first H is health. The second H is hazards. So persistent use despite ill health or persistent use despite ongoing hazards. So, you know, if you develop a spinal abscess because you're continuing to inject, or if you develop a, a you know, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease for cannabis use disorder, and you still don't stop, well, that's, that would be a health. But if you get bashed up by your dealer because you can't pay for the, for the drugs, well, that's a hazard. Or if you drive under the influence of cannabis, that's a hazard. And then you get caught by the cops. That's a hazard. So the H, so E is for escalating amounts. W is for withdrawal. T's, there's uh, two T's. The, the one that's next to W is tolerance, so withdrawal and tolerance. These are the physiological criteria. Second H, then we have A for activity, so a reduction in the amount of activities. So this speaks to the saliency of ICD-11. Uh, so basically, instead of having a broad range of activities where you go to work, you have your hobbies, you socialize, you make dinner, you play with the kids and you sleep, you spend less and less time doing all of that and more and more time smoking cannabis. Then we've done the second T. The second T is time. So um, spending a lot of time either acquiring, using, or recovering from the drug use. Again, that goes with a reduction of activities because we've only got 24 hours in the day. And if you spend more time taking drugs, you've got less time for everything else. And then C is, we've already talked about the two Cs, so craving or control. And then the last two criteria for, for me really encapsulate what it really means to be uh, substance use disordered or, or, or dependent or addicted. And they are firstly, the inability to meet role obligations and therefore consequent to that, the loss of personal relationships. To me, addiction is, is like tearing away at the outer layers of your identity, layer by layer, layer by layer, like an onion skin, until eventually you've got nothing left except your own personal childlike vulnerability. You know, and, and you lose all your friends and the only people that you can sort with at that time are other drug users. And then recovery is gradually, well, acknowledging the problem and then gradually seeking to reacquire all of those layers of your former identity and change the makeup of your, of your relationships. So, you know, no longer having relationships, relationships with people who use drugs, but having relationships with people who don't use drugs, who are, who are engaged in, in meaningful activities. So again, it's expanding out that identity back to your former self. That to me is the, the, those, two, those two criteria, the O and the P, the obligations and personal relationships define the, the psychosocial chaos of any substance use disorder and, and also cannabis. So chew that cop, that's the most famous mnemonic in addiction medicine. It's the one I use to, to uh, describe the DSM-5 criteria for substance use disorder, including cannabis use disorder. It's not the only way of diagnosing a problem with cannabis, is it? There are other ways of doing it. You alluded to ICD-11, Philippe. I did. Um, I must admit, I mainly use the DSM-5 criteria, but there is also the ICD-11 criteria, yeah. which is, again, readily available. I, I think with yeah. any of these, the overlying themes you've kind of talked about are basically the, the, the main kind of things to kind of consider, but if one wants to formalize the diagnosis or be robust in the diagnosis, particularly when we're attributing a use disorder, I don't think it really makes much difference which criteria you use, as long as you're confident in the usage of the yeah. criteria and that you're confident that you can systematically reproduce it. So the thing that I usually yeah. do is I usually use the DSM-5 personally, just because I've got yeah. easier access to the DSF-5 manual. It's, it's in our outpatient clinic, so easy to use. <laughs> but there is the ICD-11 criteria, which is probably yeah. more, more widespread because it is um, the DSM-5 is created by the American Psychological Association, whereas the ICD-11 uh, criteria is, is 
by the World Health Organization. So it is a more universal um, um, system. Uh, to me, and I'd, I'd be interested to know your opinion, but I think it's somewhat horses for courses. Whatever you're comfortable with is probably the thing that one should use, but I'd, I'd defer to you on that one, Fergal. Yeah, so basically ICD-11, from a practical point of view, is used by the Europeans and DSM-5 is used by the Americans and the Australians. But remember, DSM started out as a, as a manual for billing for insurance claims. I mean, I think it's, it's morphed into something much more useful nowadays, but it's, that's, that's, that is what its original purpose was. Um, but again, ICD-11 creates a diagnosis of dependence, or, and that dependence is fundamentally determined by three key characteristics. And they have, they, they explore the, each individual characteristic in more detail in subtext. But the main three criteria are basically the physiological criteria, i.e. tolerance and withdrawal. And then we have the lack of control. So escalating amounts, the inability to stop, things like that. And then we have the saliency, the prioritization. So again, we've got the narrowing of the focus and the, the use of drugs to the exclusion of all else, including activities and obligations and personal relationships. So there are three criteria for substance dependence, physiological, uh, saliency or prioritization, and then the lack of control. But that, that, is a, that is a criteria or set of criteria that diagnoses a substance dependence, which is at the pinnacle of severity. But there are a couple of other mutually exclusive diagnoses underneath that one. And one of them is a pattern of harmful use where you, you're not actually dependent, but you're using frequently enough to cause harm. And then beneath that, there is episodic use. And these are all mutually exclusive diagnoses within the ICD-11 framework. But yeah, as you say, it doesn't really matter which framework you use, so long as you use a framework, stick with it, get to know it, and use that particular framework to, to diagnose your patients. I like using both because ICD-11 does give you the uh, pattern of harmful use and the episodic hazardous use, which doesn't really get explained very well in, in the DSM criteria. But when we're talking purely about dependence, which is the really pointy end of addiction, they're basically, the principles are the same. That's a great summary, Fergal. And in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we've covered a lot about cannabis use disorder. We've recapped some of the previous episodes that we've done. We've talked about the symptoms of cannabis use, the symptoms of intoxication, how to identify someone with cannabis use disorder, particular at-risk populations for cannabis use disorder, and also how to classify someone uh, with a cannabis use disorder and the criteria to use. So thank you again for your company on this episode of Cracking Addiction and bye for now.